Well, good morning. Pray that you are having a wonderful weekend. We are in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, going through this series entitled An Amazing Grace. And the title of this morning's message is Three Appalling Truths and Three Powers. A number of years ago, I was on a flight to Latin America. A Canadian was sitting beside me. And somehow our conversation landed on the subject of human evil. He stated categorically that evil did not exist. He said that in his spiritual journey, life as we know it, this life of individual conscience and of relationship with other people, it's all in an illusion. The secret to spiritual peace, according to him, was the path of detachment from all things. He provoked me. I had just come from an African country that had gone through a military coup. I was flying to a Latin American country where about 70% of the population is involved in spiritism, that is communication with the spiritual realm, demonic forces. Both countries were examples of tremendous injustice, political corruption, economic disparity. How could I honestly say that evil did not exist when I was observing self-centeredness in my own life, institutional corruption around me, and the use of religion to actually curse people and eliminate people? Was he, as a Canadian, and a fairly well-to-do Canadian from Vancouver, able to just detach himself from the world around him? He was able to fly to a Caribbean resort, was he, because of his position in life, kind of able to detach himself from the realities that most people in the world have to face on a daily basis? What is the human condition? Some would argue that we're continually evolving, that each chapter of human history is better than the one before it. Some would say that if we could offer universal education, universal health care, and a better judicial system to all people, we could solve our own problems. We determine our own destiny. Now, how does the Bible describe our human condition? What is the truth? John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, Jesus said, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So let's abide in the word this morning, the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you again for your word. Your word that is breathed by you. Your word that reveals to us who you are, who we are. Reveals to us the truth about the world around us. The truth about life. Jesus, you're the way, the truth, and the life. And so this morning, we pray that you, by your Spirit, would guide us into truth. And may your truth set us free. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. The main point of this message is the following. The Bible says that outside of Christ, we are spiritually dead, we are enslaved to the flesh, the world, and the devil, and we stand condemned, and we desperately need help. Where do I get that from? Well, let's read Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, 
following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. The first word is and. And begins a new section of the letter, but it's tied back into the preceding verses. And so we need to be reminded of the context of these three verses. In chapter 1, the first 14 verses, Paul says God is to be praised. He's to be worshipped for blessing us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Choosing us for holiness in his presence. Predestining us for adoption in his family, redeeming us and forgiving all our sins, revealing to us the mystery of his will, that is to unite all things in Christ, making us his treasured possession, his inheritance, sealing us with his spirits that we might be for the praise of his glory. And then in verses 15 to 23, he prays for the Ephesians, and it's a prayer for us as well, that the Father might give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God, so that we might know the hope to which we have been called to be his inheritance, to be God's treasured possession, so that we might know the power at work in us that raised Jesus from the dead. Wow. This Jesus that is seated above every power in the universe and under whose gracious rule we now live as his people, as his church. So having reminded us of who we are in Christ, Paul now reminds us of who we were before we knew Jesus. There's a refreshing realism to this passage. Verse 1 again. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Outside of Christ, human beings are born as sons and daughters of Adam. They enter the world spiritually dead, disconnected from God, alienated from God, alienated from the life of God. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the, as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. So this is the biblical diagnosis of fallen human beings in fallen society all over the world. He's not just talking about some particularly decadent group or some especially degraded segment of society. He's talking about all people everywhere. The word trespasses or transgressions, it refers to individual wrong steps. We deviate from the right path. We violate commands of God. We cross a known boundary. He talks about trespasses. He talks about sins. Sins are, are, are thoughts, words, actions that, that just miss the mark. We fall short of God's standard because we're fallen. The two words together, they form one concept of evil. Sins of commission and sins of omission. We are rebels and failures. In our trespasses and sins, we live separated from God. We are not in right relationship with him. Now you might say... But hey, that person, full of physical vigor, that athlete, that leader who has a charismatic personality, that scholar with a brilliant mind, are you saying that they're dead? They couldn't be more alive. But the scriptures would say that if they are blind to the glory of Jesus, 
if they are deaf to the voice of the Holy Spirit, if they do not love the Father, if they do not love God's people, then they are dead. They live a living death. Outside of Christ, we are spiritually dead. Outside of Christ, we are spiritually dead. How do we escape from this living death? Jesus said in John chapter 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. To be born from above is to be spiritually reborn. Well, how does that happen? Back in verse 1 of chapter 2 of Ephesians, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. In which you once walked refers back to the trespasses and sins. The Ephesians, Paul is saying, you, you guys, you conducted yourselves in a certain manner before knowing Christ. You had a way of living in the past. And he's saying to them that they are bound. Outside of Christ, we're in bondage. Well, in bondage to what, you might ask? We are in bondage to and directed by three compelling powers. We're in bondage to and directed by three compelling powers. What are they? Verse 2, following the course of this world, or it could be translated according to the age of this world. Course, age, it refers to this present evil age. Paul's talking about being enslaved to a worldview, beliefs, values, Of this age of darkness, in contrast to the ways of God. He's talking about a world, it's a society organized without reference to God. A whole social system that's alien to him. Contrast to God's kingdom. He's saying to the Ephesians, listen, your behavior before you knew Jesus was determined by this influence. Your worldview, your beliefs, what you thought about the world, your values, the way that you acted, it was all determined by this system, by this worldview. You didn't actually have a mind of your own. You were in bondage. Now, it's sobering to observe how the world influences us today. Some people would consider the things that I'm going to say to be just self-evident truths. For example, first thing. I'm free to do as I wish as long as I don't hurt anyone else. I'm free to do as I wish as long as I just don't hurt anyone else. So freedom of choice without limits has become sacred. The only sin which is not tolerated is intolerance. We live with the illusion that society can actually be value-free. Until someone else's choice hurts me, and then we want justice. But the problem is that we have no foundation for justice. We don't know what it looks like. Thank you. Let me try another one. Here's another thing that's often said. You don't want to be on the wrong side of history. You don't want to be on the wrong side of history. So this one was repeated many times in the media in recent weeks in relation to legislation in North Carolina. You don't want to be on the wrong side of history. What it means is that you don't want to swim against the powerful evolutionary stream of the 21st century. You don't want to be found on the wrong side of history. Get with it. John Stott writes, Wherever human beings are being dehumanized, by political oppression or bureaucratic tyranny, 
by an outlook that is secular, repudiating God, amoral, repudiating absolutes, or materialistic, glorifying the consumer market by poverty, hunger, unemployment, or racial discrimination, or by a form of injustice, there we can detect the subhuman values of this age and this world. What he's saying, in essence, is when we reject God and his revelation to us, we don't become more human. We become less human. Outside of Christ, we are in bondage to the world. We're in bondage to the world. Now, how can we be set free? And is it just this world that we wrestle with? Are there other powers at work in our lives? Paul continues in verse 2, following the prince of the power of the air. Prince, that's a word for a tribal leader or a national leader. Air, air refers to the unseen realm within which the prince of the air works. In Ephesians 6 verse 12, Paul writes, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, it's very unfashionable nowadays to believe in a personal devil. It's very unfashionable to believe in personal demonic forces under the command of the devil. But there's no obvious reason why our culture should determine our theology. The plain teaching of Jesus and the apostles affirms their existence. In fact, Ephesians has more to say about the principalities and powers than any other New Testament letter. And it has more to say about how we should respond to principalities and powers. Here's some examples of other texts in Ephesians that refer to the devil or the evil one. Chapter 4, verse 27. Give no opportunity to the devil. Chapter 6, verse 11. The schemes of the devil. Chapter 6, verse 16. The flaming darts of the evil one. In the Gospels, the Pharisees will refer to the devil as the prince of demons. Jesus will refer to the devil as the ruler of this world. The prince of the air or the ruler of the kingdom of the air or the devil, these designations, they refer to a personal center of power, of evil in the spiritual realm. The devil rules over a host of spiritual forces organized in opposition to God and his people. This is the clear teaching of Scripture. And if we believe in the authority of Scripture, then we must take seriously wrestle with what Jesus says and what the apostles say. We do ourselves a disservice when we try to eliminate this reality from our lives, to live as if it doesn't exist. Verse 2, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Work, it's the same word that's used for raising Jesus from the dead. So it's a word that talks about effective power, compelling power, at work in the lives of men and women. Paul writes about this power in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. He writes, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Only God can remove this veil of blindness. It's at work in the sons of disobedience, and that 
phrase, sons of disobedience, what it's saying is the chief characteristic of those who are outside of Christ is that they do not hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. Rather, they respond to the promptings of the evil one. They belong to a family that exists in rebellion against God and his people. That doesn't mean that everyone is demon-possessed that does not know Jesus, but it means that they live within a domain of darkness under the influence of personal evil forces. So how do we escape? Is it possible to be set free from this domain of darkness? Sarah was dedicated to a spirit as a child. From an early age, she was ushered into the world of European spiritism. And as she grew, she experimented with other religious paths other forms of spiritism, different Christian sects. She was looking for freedom. She was looking for life. She was desperate. She was invited to an evangelistic event, and during the worship of that event, before the word was even preached, she fell into a catatonic state, unconscious. Believers came around her, prayed for her, and over a number of weeks, she was freed from every oppressive power at work in her life. It was interesting that along the way, she said, she confessed, I always knew right from an early age that I was working with the dark side. This is a stark testimony to the existence of individual conscience, the knowledge of good and evil. But when she chose Jesus, she was set free. But she had to choose. She had to turn to Jesus for salvation. As she began to walk with Jesus in her journey toward healing, she had to forgive all kinds of people. She had to learn to see herself and the world around her from a new perspective. Now, you might say that that's a reality from another world. That's not here. But if we say that to ourselves, we're just lying to ourselves. We're saying that what Jesus says about reality is not true. These forces are at work around the globe and here in Canada. The bondage of the power of the prince of the air, it may manifest itself differently in different places, but it is very real. Outside of Christ, we are in bondage to the prince of the air. We are in bondage to the prince of the air. Now, we've talked about the power of the world. We've talked about the power of the prince of the air. Are there other forces at work in our lives outside of Christ? Well, verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Among whom refers back to the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. And so he's talking about the world of social interaction. If you're a part of the world, then you come under the influence of the world, the prince of the air, and the flesh. The flesh is the source of our desires, of our lusts. It refers to our fallen, self-centered, rebellious human nature. Galatians chapter 5 offers us a graphic list of what the flesh is capable of, Galatians 5.19. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries. It's hard to read this list. Dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. And, you know, you would wish that that was the whole list. And Paul says, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
Now, returning to Ephesians, Paul continues in verse, verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Is there something wrong with just natural bodily desire? The desire for food, for sleep, for sex? No. But the desire for food can become gluttony. <laughs> the desire for sex, the appetite for sex can become sexual lust. Is there anything wrong with using the mind, thinking creatively? No. But motivated by the flesh, the use of the mind can become intellectual pride, selfish ambition, revengeful thoughts. Wherever self raises its ugly head against God and man, the flesh is at work. Outside of Christ, we are in bondage to the flesh. We're in bondage to the flesh. Now, today we walk in a world that messages us every day. Our flesh is stimulated. <laughs> it's enticed. It's fed. For, again, another statement that many would consider to just be a self-evident truth. You have to be yourself and not care what anyone else says. <laughs> you have to be yourself and not care what anyone else says. According to this way of thinking, our identity is discovered as, as we just contemplate our own dreams and desires. It has nothing to do with God or relationship with others. We create our own identity. We define ourselves. We discover ourselves without the aid of any ancient wisdom or revelation. In fact, ancient wisdom and revelation, it's just that. It's ancient. We're in the 21st century. We can create our own truth. We can, we can create our own universe. Now, unfortunately, an identity that's based on our own revelation and our own thinking and our own experiences, it will always be unstable and shifting. Always unstable. And even more so sobering, it is totally an illusion. We are influenced from the outside. There's no way of changing that. We live in the universe that God created for us. We are all influenced by history. We're all influenced by the world around us. We are all given a grid through which we filter information and experiences. It is inevitable. And so there is no such thing as the sovereign self, the independent self. And this way of thinking, of, of course, it endangers all of us. It certainly endangers marriage. <laughs> Some of us are suffering in our marriages because of this influence. The world's telling us to live for ourselves. We're having a hard time remaining, remaining committed to our spouses because any meaningful relationship, whether it be a friendship or a marriage relationship, it depends on sacrificial love. It's strengthened through the sacrifice of self. There is no other way. And sometimes we need to be ministered to. So if you are married, I really encourage you to go to that Fusion 2 to 1 retreat. End of May. Sign up for that. Invest in your marriage. And God will use that for your growth and to use you as a blessing to others. Another message we hear quite often is, Keep your religious views private. Keep your religious views to yourself. Why? 
Because faith in Christ is the number one enemy of the sovereign self. Dependence on and submission to a creator is the number one enemy of the flesh. And that's why the world tells us, keep your religious views to yourself. Every view we have, whether it be our view on multiculturalism, on politics, on social patterns, on ethics, every view that we hold has at its foundation a theological perspective, a religious perspective. So in our society where we're being taught to live for ourselves, it's becoming increasingly difficult to age, to die. In a recent CBC interview about assisted suicide, the Federal Minister of Health said, people need to have personal autonomy. I'm quoting. People need to have personal autonomy. People want to be able to write their own story. And that happens as much as ever at the end of life. What is not shared with us is the religious perspective behind what's being said. It's an ethical statement. So do we really want to live with the illusion that we can create our own self, determine our own own destiny, write our own story right to the end of life? Or do we want to submit to our creator and allow the truth of Jesus Christ to free us? Paul offers a profound analysis of the human condition in these three verses. Outside of Christ, we are enslaved. We are bound to three powers simultaneously. We're bound to the flesh, our fallen sinful nature. We're bound to the world, a collective way of believing, of thinking, of valuing, of behaving, of, of, of living in opposition to God. We're bound to the devil, this supernatural personal power that is active among those that do not know Jesus, those that live under the power of the world in the flesh. And it's not just Paul who talks about the world this way. James says the same thing in James chapter 4. The Apostle John says something very similar in 1 John 2 and 3. Jesus talks about the world in this way. Three powers that lead us to rebel against God, encouraging us to remain separated from God. Because of our fallen condition, according to Paul, we are condemned. We stand condemned. Verse 3, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. By nature means by birth. The phrase speaks to the origin of our condition. As members of a fallen race, by birth, by our inherited nature, we deserve God's wrath and divine judgment. It's true that we were created with dignity, that God created us in his image. But outside of Christ, we live separated from God, and there is no part of our person that remains untainted by evil. Our minds, our emotions, our will, our bodies, all that we are has been tainted by evil. Like the rest of mankind, Paul says, so all of humanity is is included, no matter our ethnic origin, our social status, We are all included. Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So inherently, we are all subject to condemnation. The wrath in view is God's holy anger against sin. 
This is not unbridled anger. This is not God having a bad day, a bad temper. This is not God acting out of spite. It's not an arbitrary reaction. It's also some, not just some impersonal force that's a part of the universe. This is a personal, holy God who cannot stand idly by when people act wrongly in relation to others, when people transgress his law, when people do not to submit to him as creator, when people spurn his kindness and anger. God can, uh, sorry, kindness and mercy, God cannot stand idly by. And would we want a God who would allow evil to run unrestrained throughout history? Would we want a God that would be passive, disengaged, disinterested? What is God's wrath? It is his personal, constant hostility to evil. His refusal to compromise with it. His resolve to condemn evil and exercise justice. He must be and always will be faithful to his character. He is just. This week I've been asking myself, am I thankful for God's uncompromising ways? Do I worship God for his holiness, for his consistency, for his perfect righteousness? In summary, evil is not an illusion. It is a reality. Evil exists within us, in the world, in the spiritual realm. Without help, we're dead. Detachment does not help us or anyone else. Without help, the truth is we are spiritually dead, we are in spiritual bondage, and we stand condemned. We desperately need help. Who can help us? Tiger Woods, he's a North American golf pro. He had his life exposed in 2009. It was revealed that he was having multiple affairs and his life just came undone. He gave an interview at the end of last year. And in that interview, he said the following, and I quote, My only peace has been in between the ropes and hitting the shots. So if you're not a golfer, that means that the only place that he finds peace is when he's playing the game of golf on the fairway. And then he continues, I peaked at 11 years of age, to be honest with you. I went 36-0 that year, never lost the tournament. And I probably had the cutest girlfriend all of sixth grade. And I had straight A's. I've been trying to get back to that ever since. What's he saying? He yearns to get back to that age of innocence. He wants to undo the life that he has lived. He he just wishes that he could be forgiven, that he could be set free from it all. Who can set him free? Who can set us free? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God! But God! Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Amen. By grace you have been saved. And so Paul reminds us of who we were before we knew Jesus so that we might celebrate the wonderful good news of salvation in Jesus that we might remember what we have been saved from. Those who were baptized today, they showed us the way forward. When we enter the water, we die to ourselves. 
We die to our independence. We die to our life of rebellion against God. We, we turn toward relationship with God. We turn to Jesus for salvation. We put our trust in him because out of love he came and he took our sin upon himself. He paid the price for sin that we could never pay once for all. We say, thank you, Jesus. We die to ourselves. We put ourselves on the cross and we say, Jesus, you're our Lord and you're our Savior and we want to live for you. Fill us with your spirit. Forgive us. And Jesus forgives. Lord, I want eternal life. And he gives us life. And by his spirit, we enter into relationship with God. And the spirit abides in us. And teaches us to follow the way of Jesus. Teaches us to see God, to see ourselves, to see the world around us in a whole new way. And so then we are no longer dead. (laughs) We're alive. We're no longer bound. We've been set free. We're no longer condemned. We're forgiven. Amen. Hallelujah. Next week, we'll talk about this amazing salvation that we have in Jesus. But this morning, let's just be grateful for what God has saved us from. Amen? If you're grateful for what Jesus has saved you from, raise your hand. Let's just pray together. Father, you see our hands raised, and we just thank you. Lord, I think of myself, I don't deserve to be here to be your child. None of us do here this morning, Lord. And you have made us spiritually alive in you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for freeing us from ourselves, from the world around us, from the evil one. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus, that you triumphed over the evil one when you died on the cross. Thank you that you rose again in the power of the Spirit. Thank you for sending your Spirit to live within us. Thank you that we're forgiven. Oh God, thank you. What a blessing. And so we are grateful. And maybe you're here this morning and, and you've never prayed to receive Jesus. And so please hear Jesus inviting you. It's not me inviting you. It's Jesus inviting you. Jesus said, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Jesus offers abundant life to us, but we need to turn to him. We need to turn from our life of independence, our life of sin, and turn to him. We need to repent of that, turn from that, and turn to him. And say, Jesus, I need you as my Savior. I'm desperate. Jesus, save me, forgive me. Give me life. And so if that's you here this morning, then just raise your hand. Is that? If you're receiving Jesus for the first time this morning, just raise your hand. Keep your hand raised, and I'm going to pray, and I ask you to pray with me. Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you for giving your life for my salvation. Thank you, Father, for sending Jesus out of love. Thank you, Jesus, for giving your life, for dying on the cross for my sin. Lord, I ask you to forgive me 
Thank you for offering forgiveness, Lord. I don't deserve it. Lord, I ask that you send your Holy Spirit to live within me. Oh, Lord, I want to live for you. Empower me by your Spirit to follow your way. I need you, Jesus. I just give you my life. I entrust myself completely to to you. Be my Lord. Guide me. Teach me. I want to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. If you prayed that prayer to receive Jesus this morning, a number of hands were raised, then uh, I'd encourage you to either come here to the front to talk to us or talk to the friend that brought you or go back to the Welcome Center. We would love to pray with you and just share some resources with you. God bless. Have a wonderful week.